Here I am. All right, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, our need for you is great. My need for you is great. Lord, I, uh, help me, God, to communicate the truths of Scripture to my brothers and sisters, God. Lord, open their hearts to receive the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that you would just break up the fallow ground of our hearts, God, that hard pan soil of our hearts that's grown hard, Lord, just break it up with your Holy Spirit, with your word, Lord, so that we can just receive the seed of the word of God in our lives today. God, help us to be changed. God, help me to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so by, by show of hands, if how many of you have uh, even know who I am? <laughs> how about that? Okay. All, right. All right, how many of you have heard me preach? Okay, so the, the majority of you, that, that's good. So some of you guys are like, who is this guy? The, the short answer is nobody. Uh, the, the long answer is I was uh, a deacon at this church and went here for a good uh, seven years or so. And uh, we moved down to Texas for a spell. Is that how they say it? For a spell. I can't do the accent. I'm not good at accents. If I could do the British accent, I'd be all about that, but I can't. Uh, so anyway, we were down there for a bit, uh, and you know, we, we, went, we went down to basically work as ministers down there, and uh, anyway, the Lord brought us back. It's a long story. I don't want to bore you with it. It would take like hours to talk to you about all of that, so if you want to talk about it, you can uh, talk to me about it. All right, so, so here I am. My name's Jonathan Wilder. And we will be in John chapter 4, verse 43. Now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee. He went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. All right. Now, here's what's going on in, in this story is that you have to understand what's going on with the entire book of the gospel of John. Okay, now, 
the Gospel of John has this prelude and it says that light came into this world and that he, Christ, the word was made flesh and he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Okay. And that's sort of the, the whole plot of the book of John. Okay. You see the, the wishy-washy crowd of the Jews receiving Jesus after a fashion, but not really receiving him because we know the end of the story. It's that the Jews turn on him and they hang him on a cross and, and they kill him. Okay. They abandon him and nobody's really there when he's crucified. Okay. So what, what I find very interesting about this particular passage is that Jesus says that one, he has, that a prophet has no honor in his country, right? Or that's what the scriptures say. And, but the Galileans received him, okay? So they're, they're actually like, hey, we saw all the things you did. Awesome. And they're, they're rushing after him and they're following him everywhere he goes. He has crowds. And they, at some point, like even a couple chapters later, they follow him into the wilderness and they didn't even bring provisions for themselves. So no food, no water, you know, and they'll just, they're just following Jesus until they're going to basically faint. That's how excited they are about Jesus. So it's interesting that the scripture says that a prophet has no honor in his country when Jesus is apparently receiving a great deal of honor at this moment. There's people are believing, you know, that he is a great man. Okay, they may not believe that he is the son of God or that he's a savior of the world, but they believe that he's at least a great prophet. And, and you know, they are excited about what's going on. They're like, this is it. Something amazing is going to happen and I want to be there for it. And there they were. Okay, but as you read the gospel of John, what you're going to see is that, is that Jesus knew the hearts of men. And that even though the Jews received Christ after a fashion, they didn't really receive him on the terms that he was asking to be received on. Okay. So, so that's, what's going on here. And, 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 you know, even as you read in, in John chapter six, we won't go there cause it's a long story, but, but he basically multiplies loaves and fishes. Okay. And there's the same crowd, the same crowd is there and and they get fed. And they're like, that was amazing. We got a free meal. He can basically create food out of thin air. That's incredible. We should follow this guy wherever he goes and we can get free lunches forever. Okay. And, and they want to make him king by force. They're like, this dude's going to be king because he can like, poof, there's food. Okay. So, but Jesus says to them, hey, the reason you're following me is because you were hungry and you were filled, okay? And then, of course, he goes into the bread of life sermon where he, where he says, you know what? You guys need the real bread from heaven, which is me. It's my flesh, okay? And if you eat of my flesh, then you will never die, okay? But they weren't getting it. And at the end of that sermon, what happens? People heard Jesus say this weird thing, eat my flesh, and then you can have eternal life in yourself. And, and they were like, you are a weirdo. We are not cannibals. We're out. And then they leave. Okay? So just a couple chapters later, we see the crowds disperse. And then all that's left really are a couple disciples. And, these, and then Jesus says, do you guys want to go too? And Peter says, where will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So another part of this uh, story that, that interests me is that Jesus says something else. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. 
But the exact opposite happens right after that. Okay, the, the, not the centurion, the nobleman from Capernaum, you know, he, he says, hey, my son needs your help. Come heal my son. And he's like, unless you see signs of wonders, you'll by no means believe. And then he's like, please heal my son. I beg you. He probably tears in his face, you know, and, and Jesus says, go away. Your son's, your son. I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably making Jesus sound a little meaner than he is, right? But, I, but, he, but, he, but he's basically like, he's like, go away. Your son's, your son's fine. And, uh, and so the guy believes him. He just believes Jesus's word. Jesus says, your son's well, go away. And the guy's like, cool, I believe you. And he leaves the exact opposite of what is said. And I believe that the reason that happened is it was a way of punctuating to the crowds, okay, how they didn't have true faith, but this guy did. So he was, he was, it was an example. It was a visual example of how one person actually had genuine faith in Christ and then these guys had a very superficial faith, okay? Now, I'm curious, have you ever heard the phrase, seeing is believing? Yeah. Okay, everybody's heard it. I mean, if you haven't heard it, then I don't know what planet you're living on. But uh, so a lot of people in the modern world are convinced that this is basically the only way to really know something. The scientific method. I got to get in the laboratory. I've got to have the beakers and I've got to have the fluids and I've got to mix this and mix that and make calculations and see what happens. And then when I see what happens, then I know the true shape of the world. Okay. That's, that's the age we're living in. But I wonder, is there a difference between accepting something? Okay. Up here, in our head, some sort of mental ascent and true faith. You know, the, I, what I want to demonstrate to you here is that you can have belief in one sense, as we saw with the crowds, and then be completely lacking what the Bible says is faith. Okay? So, so I want to tell you about this guy. This guy is named Charles Blondin. Has anybody heard of who Charles Blondin is? Is there anybody in the... Okay, you guys are in for a treat. When I read about this guy, I was like, I don't believe this. This isn't real. This is fiction, but it's not. It's for real. So Charles Blondin was a French tightrope walker who lived in the 19th century, so 1800s. He grew up in the circus, for real, grew up in the circus. Okay, weird. It happened. Okay. And he was considered one of the greatest tightrope walkers of all time. So in the mid-1800s, he was enamored with Niagara Falls specifically. He would, he would look at Niagara Falls, and he'd be like, you know what? Here's what I should do. I should stretch out a rope, you know, a thousand plus feet over this river and these falls, you know, 200 feet above the air, and I should walk across that in the sight of everybody. Okay. And so, so he does it. Okay. He, he stretches out this uh, this rope and, and then he, the, the flyers are out. Hey, this guy, this idiot, you know, is going to walk across Niagara Falls, come and see what happens. And then a huge crowd shows up because they're like, dude, what's going to happen? They didn't really have television back then. Okay. So like, you know, they're like, whoa, this is reality TV for them. Okay. And <clears throat> so now when he did it, huge, huge uh, crowd there, he crossed it. No problem. Done. Back. Okay. And everybody's like, wow. And he told the crowd after he did that, he says, I'm going to do this a lot more. But each time I do it, 
It's going to be even more amazing. So come back each time. So he did. He crossed Niagara Falls a number of times, promising, of course, that each performance would be more extreme than the next one. So one, he crossed it blindfolded. He crossed it backwards. He ran across. He did somersaults and backflips across on a rope. He carried his manager on his back across Niagara Falls on a little rope. Okay. How'd you like to be that guy? This one just gets me. I mean, I would, I would have died. I would have died on any of these, right? But I mean, but this one especially would have definitely died on this one. Okay. He crossed on stilts. He crossed while shackled. He crossed while tied up in a sack. Whole body tied up in a sack. Somehow crossed it. I don't know. I wasn't there. Okay. Believe it or not. So once, this is just weird. Once he carried a stove and utensils on his back, walked to the center of the cable, started a fire, cooked an omelet. When it was ready... He lowered the breakfast to passengers on a passing ship. This is for real. See, can you, when I read it, I was like, this didn't happen. This is a lie. This is like the onion or something like that. This isn't real, but it's, it's for real. One time he, now, one time he asked the crowd if they believed he could cross the falls with a wheelbarrow and he got mixed answers. Okay. They're like, like, I don't know, maybe. And he proceeded to take the wheelbarrow and he went doo, 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 across. No problem. Nuts, but he did it. So next, he came back with the, with the wheelbarrow and, and uh, they filled the wheelbarrow full of rocks. And then, then he went doo, 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 and then made it. Everybody was amazed. But each time he did one of these feats, he asked him, do you think I could do it? And people were skeptical. Like, no way, man, no way. And then he did it each time. Then... Finally, after he walked across with the wheelbarrow and then he walked across with the rocks, he comes back and he says, do you think I could cart a man across the ravine on this tightrope in a wheelbarrow with me pushing him? And they were like, of course you can, man. We've seen you do all this crazy stuff. Of course you can. So then he asked for a volunteer. <laughs> he said, he said, okay, you guys think I can do it. Who's going to go? And it was crickets. Nobody was brave enough to get in the wheelbarrow and go across. So he had to cart his manager over who was, you know, sort of the guinea pig, poor guy. Okay. Now, the crowd was fully convinced that he could do it. But when it came time for them to actually, okay, put their money where their mouth was, their courage failed them. Okay. Now you see, they had seen what we could call wonders, right? I mean, we, we, we think about them like, how did he do that? That's amazing. Seems almost miraculous. And they were there and they saw it with their very eyes and they acknowledged in their minds that he could do it, but seeing was not believing when it came to trusting him with their own lives. So again, mental assent doesn't equal biblical faith. 
there is a difference between nodding your head to a few points of doctrine about Jesus and trusting your life to him completely. You see, Jesus had multiplied volumes of people who followed him. They believed he was the Messiah, many of them, or at least a very great prophet. They saw his miracles, they heard his words, and they were excited about it. Obviously, I mean, they followed him for days in the wilderness with no food, being like, who cares about that? I'm going wherever this guy's going. I'm not going to go get, you know, I go get lunch, I'm going to miss out. He's going to go away and I'm not going to know where he is. But the majority of these followers were condemned by Jesus for their unbelief and were sentenced to a worse fate than Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys remember this, uh, in Matthew eleven twenty, and you know, I'll skip to 23 after every 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And then verse 23, and you Capernaum who were exalted to the heavens will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So this is, this is the savior of the world who literally came to shed his own life's blood to save people, pronouncing anathema on the cities that he did most of his ministry in. And this is, this, I mean, make no mistake, this is him basically saying, you guys are going to hell. Because like, if you, can't, if you can see everything that you've seen, and you can hear everything that you've heard and still not believe the way you're supposed to believe. There's nothing else I can do for you. So why is it that this crowd which followed Jesus and desired to make him king by force turned on him in the end? Because they had received Jesus after a fashion, but not in the way that was required. They believed in Jesus as a political messiah. They had faith in him for that, but they didn't believe in him as a savior for their souls. They were ready to depose the reigning king and put him on the throne by force. They're like, let's, let's start this revolution. Let's get him on the throne. They were ready to do it then, right then. But they didn't want to be freed from the greater despot, that greater dictator, sin, and the world. The truth is the crowd was fickle. They wanted to crown him one moment and the next they're walking out on him. Upon entering Jerusalem, they hail him as a hero. A few days later, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. See, Jesus subverted their expectations. They had spent so long writing a script for the Messiah based on their past heroes that they couldn't recognize him when he came for real. And I believe that very little has changed in this modern era. There is a great host of people who call themselves Christians today, but if you peel back the proverbial layers, I suspect many of these professing Christians will find themselves in the same position as these first century Jews. We have a kind of belief, but can it be rightly called faith in the biblical sense? So what is it 
that the Bible means by faith. Let's look at James chapter 2. It says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And then fast forward to 17. (laughs) Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So James says that you will know a man's faith in how he lives. Clear as day. Jesus actually says something very similar. He says that you can tell a false prophet by his fruits. Right? And when he's talking about those fruits, he's not talking about the miracles they perform. Because he says false prophets will come. False Christs will come. And they'll perform wonders, deceiving, if possible, even the elect, the scripture says. So the fruit that he's talking about is not speaking in tongues. It's not prophesying. It's not performing healings. It's Christian character. Do they have Christian character? Are they preaching sound doctrine? Does their life match up with what the scriptures say? Now, anytime James is, is read, this passage of James, we always have to say what we're not saying when we're reading this, just so that there's no confusion. We're not saying that works save you. They can't, okay? Think about it. I mean, you literally cannot do anything to pay God back for all of the wrong that you have done. Think about it. Everything that we do, all the evils that we perform have eternal consequences. It literally shapes reality from that time on forever. If I, if I divorce my wife and find another gal, that forever changes the future. Okay, my kids will, will grow up in a broken home and then they'll carry those wounds for the rest of their lives, okay? It doesn't go away. So because the, the ramifications of my sin are eternal, okay, they need to be addressed eternally. So we aren't saved by works. We can't pay God back. Now this is, the way it was explained to me is that this is a fruit versus root issue, Okay, what's the root of our salvation? Well, it's our faith, okay? That is what saves us, okay? Believing in God. But if we truly have our roots in Christ, our faith in Christ, then we're getting those nutrients, we're getting the good stuff, and we're bearing fruit, okay? So the root of my salvation is my faith, but the fruit of my salvation is my works, Now, here's what's interesting. What James is saying is that we can detect if we have real faith or not by examining our own lives. In fact, this is actually something that is said in Scripture specifically. It says, examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. 
Well, it's a, it, the scripture demands it. It's a command of scripture. And this is why I think the Charles Blondin example demonstrates the difference between saving faith and mental assent so well. The crowd rooted Charles on. They said, yeah, you can do it. Do it. And they wanted to watch it. And it was incredible. And it was a good time. And they watched him perform daring feat after daring feat. But when he asked if they, and of course, when he asked if they thought he could ferry a man over, yeah, you can do it. But when, when the time came for them to get in the, barrel, in the wheelbarrow, no, no way. All their confidence evaporated. Now, this is the point. Saving faith in Jesus is not merely affirming points of doctrine. It is entrusting yourself wholly and completely to Jesus as Savior. It's submitting to him as Lord in absolute surrender. Trusting that Jesus will perform what he has promised, you know, concerning you, concerning us, concerning everlasting life. Okay, it's, it's, it's literally taking everything I have in this world. I mean, you, you guys remember, of course, Christian Shields preaching, right? That was awesome. You know, and he's like, you know, count the cost. Well, what is the cost? Okay, punchline if you haven't listened to it. The cost is everything, okay? You have to give it all to Christ. But what's interesting is that uh, there was this guy named Jim Elliott, and he went down to the uh, jungles of Ecuador to preach to some Indians. Uh, I, I shouldn't call them Indians, I'm sorry. Some natives, okay, who lived in the Amazon jungles, and they were the Aka natives, okay, the, the Aka tribe or... I don't know if I'm saying it right. I apologize if I'm not. But, uh, but anyway, so this guy goes down there and he says, I'm going to preach the gospel to these guys. They're pretty violent. They have a reputation for being violent, but I'm going to go down anyway. He goes down with, with some of his missionary buddies, gets speared to death, yeah. dies. Okay. And, you know, the, the great story about that is that, of course, the family goes to the same tribe that killed their dad and their husband, their husbands, I should say, and their dads. And they live with them and they say, you know what? We forgive you and we still want to bring the gospel to you. And the Akas are now Christians now and actually fly to other tribes sharing the gospel, you know, and because of what happened there. But, but that's not the, the, the point I was saying is that Jim Elliott said something very interesting. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, we can't keep anything in this life. We can't even keep our own life, okay? We're slowly withering away, okay? And then, you know, it's going to be the grave. And we can't hold on to the house. We can't hold on to the, to the job. We can't hold on to, to our breath. We can't hold on to any of it, okay? We're going to lose it all. But Jesus says, hey, give me what you can't hang on to, and I'll give you something you'll never lose. That's the trade. The trade is, hey, you can't keep that anyway. It's, it's, it's mercury in your hand or whatever. I mean, that's probably not a good idea. You know, Jay's like, don't do that. Right? <laughs> uh, it's just something you can't hold on to, okay? It slips out. All right. Now, when you get in that barrel, your life is out of your hands. You are at the mercy of the one ferrying you across the gulf. And the same is true with the parachute. Think, think of this, okay? I mean, when you put a parachute on, you're saying something about that parachute, especially if you're crazy enough to jump out of a plane, yeah. which I don't, you're crazy. But, but anyway, you have that parachute and you're saying, okay, I'm going to put this sucker on and I'm going to believe that it's going to carry me to the ground, okay, safely. But I mean, if you're in a plane that's going down and you're fortunate enough to have a parachute, okay, 
You can't stay on the plane, right? You've got to trust in the parachute. You've got to jump out, fully trusting in the parachute. Same, same uh, with, with Jesus. You have to put all of your trust in him. Now, speaking of planes, <clears throat> I did want to bring this up. <laughs> you guys think the Charles Blondin thing's incredible, but you all get on planes, and there's no rope holding you up. It's just air, okay? And you're not... And you're not going 1,000 feet. You're going like 2,000 miles to some destination or more. And you're like 35,000 feet above the earth's surface in a tin can, seven miles up, no parachute, no escape pods, nothing. And you get on that plane and you're like, this is great. And then you fly and the wind makes turbulence and, and you're just like, it's cool. Nothing's going to happen. And I'm like, I can't identify with that. Okay. And these, and these guys are like, just trust us. You'll be safe. It's the safest way to travel. And I'm like, yeah, taking your word for it. Okay. But you see, well, you can tell I don't have much faith in airplanes, right? But, but uh, no matter how much that gospel is preached, you know, the gospel of flight or demonstrated to me, no. I'm not buying it, but you get the point, right? The tightrope or, you know, walking over a chasm or flying on an airplane on some man-made abomination, okay? It's It's the same thing, okay? But the sad part of that is that we exercise more faith getting on a plane than we often ever bother giving to God. It's just crazy. Air. You're on just whatever. Not a rope, air. Anyway, moving on. So I think there's another part to the story that is poignant, okay? You see, the Jews thought that they were pretty okay. Like this is the text under the text, okay? Is that the Jews thought they were the closest to God of all of the nations. They're like, God has picked us. He's given us his oracles. He's given us his laws. He's made a covenant with us. We're God's people. And they, they, they were the most safe in their own minds. The most secure. They had that special covenant that no other people enjoyed. But you know what? In spite of all of this, they were rejected by God for their lack of belief and repentance. Paul talks about this in Romans 2, 17. It says, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And like these Jews, I think it's possible to deceive oneself because they were God's people, right? That's the, that's the analogy, okay? They were God's people and they thought they were solid, but there was a problem. There was something amiss. And you can think you are standing tall in the faith and you can have a kind of faith and a form of godliness, but be in the worst kind of jeopardy. Many people consider themselves Christians But upon examination, they make little effort to combat sin 
and live a holy life, and they have very little devotion to Christ and a whole lot of devotion to this world. Matthew 15, 7 through 9 says this, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. Now, some of us are, frankly, offering pointless worship. And our prayers are not heard. Our offerings are actually offensive to God. He abhors them because he knows that they aren't real. That's the thing. It's got to be real. Okay? Real faith. Now, are you giving God lip service? But is your heart far from him? I think that we have all been in this place, even as Christians, okay? I think we've all fallen into apathy, okay, into, you know, into that, you know, spiritual entropy, okay, that, that we're just, the world is eroding our resolve day after day, and we aren't reinforcing the, the bulwarks of our spirituality, and we just sort of like, you know, drift in the current of the world, you know? We've all been there, okay? And the point is that we need to repent of that, because God is after that genuine faith, that real faith in him. Now, 1 Corinthians 9, 23 through 10, 12, it's a bit of a scripture, but I think it's an important one and I want to read it. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown for we, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And this is, this is one of the things that I simply just disagree with on the other side of the aisle, the, the Calvinist aisle. I love my Calvinist brothers. Oftentimes, I think they're a lot better at preaching the gospel than, than uh, some others. But, but here's the thing. The scripture teaches that you can, you can stray from Christ. Okay? And this is the danger that I think of, of Christians letting any kind of sin in and letting it just sit there and not repenting of it, not putting it away, not making any kind of effort to get it away. Is that what happens is it enters in and it begins to harden your heart toward the things of God. And your heart grows harder and harder and harder toward the things of God until eventually you're like, I'm out of here, okay? And then God has to chasten you, okay? Like he chastened the people of Israel. Yeah. 
okay? And that chastening can ultimately be what Paul says here, unless when he says that, you know, uh, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. If you look at that Greek word, it's like apken, apkenos. Or I don't know. I'm not a Greek, right? I can't speak it. But, but basically what it means is it means uh, apostate, okay, reprobate. It means he's saying, so Paul is, is, is conscious that, that even though he's the great Paul, the apostle, that it's possible for him if he doesn't, okay, crucify the flesh, if he doesn't discipline the body, if he doesn't remain in Christ, for him to become an apostate, for him to become a reprobate, for him to become totally worldly and to abandon everything that Christ has done for him and, and end up the worst for it. So the point I'm making is this, is that the Jews thought they were solid. They thought they were God's people, okay? But they didn't get it, okay? When it, when it finally came down to it, their unbelief in Christ became that stumbling block, okay, that they tripped over. And it ended up badly for many of them, okay? Of course, there was a remnant from, from Israel that was saved, as the scriptures say, but, but, the, but it's saying, hey, look at what happened with Israel. Because really, Israel is just a microcosm of God dealing with the world, okay? And he did it with the Jews first to sort of show the world what it was going to be like to be in relationship with God. He said, I'm going to do it with them first. They're a nation of priests, okay? And they're going to stand in the gap and I'm going to deal with them first and they're going to introduce me to the world. And they did, okay? We know God because God revealed himself to the Jews. So they did their job that way. Okay, but, what, but the example that we have is that the Jews got chastened quite a bit throughout their history because of their unbelief and because of their rebellious hearts when they turned away from God. So why do I tell you all this? Because I want to encourage you to give yourself completely over to Christ. If you aren't a Christian, I want you to become one. Place your faith in Jesus. Let him redeem you. I want you to absolutely surrender your life to Christ today. Give up your right to your life. Come to Jesus and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let him ferry you across the chasm from death to life, from this broken reality to the new reality awaiting those who trust in him completely. If you are a Christian, I want you to have more faith in him. I want you, I want that faith to be strengthened in you. Okay. Not weakened. Okay. Because if that, if that faith is weakening in me, okay, it can bring me to a place of disaster, okay? So let's, let's cultivate more faith, more strength, okay, in ourselves. Now think about this. Think about how worthy Jesus is for a moment. I want to tell you why you should completely trust him. He is the creator of the universe. He is so, he's powerful, right? I mean, if he created the universe, he's powerful. Nothing can stand against him. If anything were ever to challenge him, he could crush it like a bug. He is at the mercy of nothing. He stands in judgment over every soul. Everything answers to him. Yet he laid aside his rights and restrained his power and walked among men. The ruler of the universe submitted to human authority. And although he was at no one's mercy, he placed himself at the mercy of cruel men who punched him repeatedly in the face. The king of kings, creator of everything, was punched literally in the face 
by his creation until he was bloody. They spit on him and stripped him naked and whipped him until he was nearly dead. The judge of all creation allowed himself to be judged by dogs. Instead of worship, blasphemy. Instead of honor, mockery. Instead of dignity, shame. Instead of love, hatred. They laid the cross on his shoulders and made him carry the instrument of his death. And they hung him on the cross until he died. And he let them. He let them. They didn't force him. He let them. There was no way we could force him to do that. He let them. He had no honor in his own country. Let me bring you through an exercise. I want you to picture what I'm going to say visually in your head if you can. Okay, follow with me. There are about 200 billion... (laughs) It's already a tall order. There, There are about 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. Each of those galaxies have about a thousand million stars. It would take light, which travels at 186,282 miles a second, over 90 billion years to shine from one edge of the universe to the other. This means that if each person had a space empire, all seven billion of them, we could have more than 28 galaxies all to ourselves. Right, I mean, each person. That's how many galaxies there are. That's just space. Think of all that God created here on earth. Mountains, hills, plains, canyons, clouds, rain, waterfalls, rivers, lakes, lagoons, coral reefs, sunsets, rainbows, flowers, grass, shrubs, trees, birds, fish, whales, elephants, foxes, cats, dogs, insects, hippos, rhinos, bears, bees, butterflies, anything. Pick it. Humans, he made it. All of this God made with minimal effort. He didn't even have to get out of his chair. He was like, you know what? Let there be a universe. Boom! Universe. When Jesus created the universe, he did it with his word. He said, let it be, and it was. And the universe sprang up from nothingness at his command. But, and this is the part I want you to hear, when he saved us, it took every drop of his blood. Think about that. It was harder, friend, to save you than it was to create the universe. If that thought doesn't cut you to the heart, then you have a hard heart. You and I were so hopelessly lost in our sin that God had to go through those extreme lengths to save us. He could have deleted you. He could have snuffed out your existence and started again, but he didn't. This world is an open revolt against the king of the universe. It is in complete rebellion against God. And for all of these years, he has suffered our insolence and our insults when at any moment he could have just obliterated us. But he doesn't. Isn't that incredible? 
You see, God has reduced it all down to how you respond to Jesus. He is the linchpin. Whatever you decide to do with him will determine your eternal destiny. It's all about Jesus and it's all for him. It's about how I owe him devotion, reverence, and service. Will you give him that devotion? Does Jesus have preeminence in your life? Is he at the very center of your life? If not, what right do you have to call yourself a Christian? Would you bow your heads for a moment? We often say, over my dead body. It's like the last resort. Like, I mean, many conservatives in the room, I'm sure, like, don't take my guns over my dead body. Right? But that's what the lengths that Jesus went to for you. He hung on that cross and he said, you know what? You can go to hell if you want to, but it'll be over my dead body. The only thing that he hasn't done is knocked you out and forced you in the wheelbarrow himself. That's it. He stopped shy of that. But he's done everything else to demonstrate that he is trustworthy, that he is worthy of your faith, worthy of your devotion. How many of you can say, I know that I know if I die today, I know on the authority of God's word because I have repented of my sins, trusted in Christ, and God's spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. I know that if I die today, I'd go straight to heaven. If you couldn't say that, I want to invite you to accept Jesus Christ for who he really is. Creator God, ruler of the universe, savior of the world. To become a Christian is really simple. You must repent, or in other words, you must turn from your sins in this world and put your trust in Christ. You must believe in him. You must confess it with your mouth. Submit to him as Lord. And the moment you do that, the Holy Spirit will cause you to be born again, and you will pass from death to life. Let him ferry you across that chasm from death to life. Is there anyone who wants to do that today? Please raise your hand. Now for us Christians, I want you to absolutely surrender your life to Christ today. Give up your right to your life. Come to Jesus, receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let him reign supreme. Give him all of your hope, all of your trust. He is worthy of it. He's proven himself worthy. Trust in Jesus more fully from this point on. From this point on. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for my brothers and sisters. Lord, just help us to walk worthy of you, God. Help us to have faith in you, God. Lord, we can't even muster faith without your help, God. Help us. We're completely helpless. Help us, God. Help us to believe. Help us to trust in you. Help us to surrender to you. We give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So you have to go get your kids. That's the last thing I'm supposed to say. Have a good one, guys.
Thank you for watching the Faith and Victory live stream. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check us out online at faithandvictory.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and we'd love to connect with you there. If you'd like to financially support Faith and Victory Church's ministry, please text FAVC to 77977. God bless you and keep you. From the FVC Live Team.